0: Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 108 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and this weekend I had not one but two baking fails. The precious eggs! Oh no, what What happened? happened? The dreaded soggy bottom in one cake and then scones that were a bit too doughy.
1: Well, I think a soggy bottom in a cake is all right. Personally, I mean it doesn't necessarily look as presentationally good but who doesn't like
0: cake batter? We were eating the fuckers, don't worry about exactly. that. I'm usually pretty good at baking so I took it
2: quite hard. <laughs> <laughs> oh I'm Hannah Dunleavy and 95% of my internet searches now start can you microwave blank? What's your best find? This weekend I've microwave sausages, I mean they're cooked but they don't taste great. I found them at the bottom of the freezer. Uh, rhubarb crumble, I'm interested what Google
0: threw up though because sometimes when you put searches in like that it throws up some really interesting stuff. Oh yeah, I mean
2: like my cock
0: was number three or
2: whatever. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I'm Jen Offord, and I've learnt quite a lot about the Rocky film franchise in the last 24 hours, so don't tell me my time in lockdown has been wasted.
2: (laughs) It makes me feel emotional. I want to know why you didn't know more about the Rocky film franchise before now, Hannah, I don't know
0: if you know this, but you're talking to Jen. Yeah. Jen, who has no popular culture references. I've told you.
1: Already, Hannah, you know this about me that the only one I had previously seen, until quite recently, actually, I saw Rocky 3 quite recently, and it's fucking great. Like, just everyone go and watch it. It's got Mr. T in it, it's got Hulk Hogan in it. Everyone go and watch it. Everyone knows this. Watch it again i hope they show it again anyway i had previously only ever watched the really shit
2: rocky film which is rocky five but the others a little bit before my time can i change my fact this week to i'm Hannah Donlevy and i've discovered this great new band called the Beatles.
0: <laughs> it does really remind me of the time that my friend lucy said to me oh my god have you heard of this band talking heads and she wasn't <laughs> even taking the piss and i was like Yes, Lucy, of course I have. And it was all brand new to her. Delightful.
1: Yeah, well, anyway, on that bombshell. Later on, I chat to Hannah Turner-Vokes, founder and director of Paper Dress Vintage in Hackney, about the impact of coronavirus
0: on small businesses. I talked to Sam Hudson of the charity Women for Refugee Women about how women refugees in the UK are faring in the pandemic.
1: Following on from last week's BBC program, the restaurant that burns off calories. Writer Lucy Nicholl catches up with campaigner and author Hope Virgo to talk about how to have a responsible conversation about diet and eating disorders. And in Jenny off the blocks, are we chatting about Roger Federer's suggestion that two become one in tennis's governing bodies?
2: And in Dunleavy does disaster, women be screaming as we watch the Poseidon adventure. But first blowhards, bullshit and bleach. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Stink. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Like the ordinary news, but without a bra on. And welcome back, Boris. Finally, some hope,
0: positivity and optimism. What a man. I already feel 100% better knowing he is back at the top, leading our country through this. That's right, the Boris Nater is back in number 10. Hasta la vista, lefties! Have I gone curly-whirly cuckoo? Nope, these are just a few of the tweets trending with a hashtag Boris is back as we record on Monday, and I shouted that because it is all in capital letters. The ratio, however, isn't so much in favour of Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who returned to number 10 on Monday morning. He immediately artfully ruffled his hair and made a statement. Have Johnson's own experiences with the virus altered him at all? Was the humility, empathy, perhaps even concession that mistakes have been made? Of course not. Bojo gonna bojo, it, And so it was a standard hot air, platitudes and lies, with not a sniff of a plan, all lay through with the Poundland Churchillian posturing that sets us at war with a virus that no amount of personal fight can beat. Basically, Boris Johnson is the real-life equivalent of that meme of a cartoon dog in a hat drinking a cup of tea while everything around him burns. <laughs> Let's just revisit a few choice moments. There will, Johnson said, be many people looking at our apparent success. Um. Which is um, surprising, to say the very least, given the UK death toll looks likely to be the second worst in the world behind only America, which is, in case anyone was wondering, much
2: bigger. Apparent's interesting choice of word because apparent obviously means obvious yeah in that sentence but apparent kind of has has come to colloquially mean alleged in a way hasn't it so yeah i'm wondering what he said there looking at our apparent success it's it's not apparent
0: yeah (laughs) it has been alleged by the tories though i suppose Mm. We have collectively shielded the NHS. He, well, blatantly lied, given frontline workers are literally without the shields of PPE, causing the deaths of more than 90 frontline NHS workers. He also added, he knows how difficult it is managing the kids, which I can only presume is an admission he's not very good at counting. (laughs) Way back in March, do you remember months of the year? Anyway, Mm. way back in March, the UK government set itself two targets – to keep the total death rate below 20,000 and carry out 100,000 tests per day by the end of April. It has failed miserably on both counts. More on that, Jen? Yeah, well,
1: remember the other week when I said I had confidence in the UK government to deal with this coronavirus crisis, yeah? I do, Jen, I do. Well, I mean, I was lying, but also it turns out I'm not on my own. Which is surprising, given Pretty Patel's announcement on Saturday that shoplifting has declined. <laughs> uh-huh during lockdown while none of the shops were open. Anyway, still, uh, every cloud, right? Yeah. So an opinion poll conducted and published by The Observer at the weekend found that there had been a sharp decline in approval of the government's handling of the crisis in the last two weeks, which was down from 60 to 51%, which I still think is quite high, to be honest, but there we go. They're the
0: same people who refer to Boris Johnson as the Borisnator, Wow. Uh, confidence was particularly low
1: regarding matters like testing 15% of the people polled think this is going well apparently and they are all members of the hancock family probably (laughs) 63% of those polled also said they thought the government had not acted fast enough to contain the virus In what we can't really consider a ringing endorsement for the UK government, 52% of those polled thought they'd handled it better than the US government, (laughs) compared to 14% who did not. I don't know where the others... uh, There's a lot of fence sitters here, apparently. But anyway, curiously, more people thought we had handled it better than Italy and Spain. And I don't understand that, because we're a couple of weeks behind both of those countries, and... They don't have that many more deaths than us. So anyway, and with 20,000 deaths recorded in the UK, that's just the recorded ones, by the way, that is 10% of the current global death toll. So that's not good, is it? Because we are not 10% of the population. Yeah, I think if you are going to push me on that, Jen, I will agree. It's not good. (laughs) 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 Uh, But it's not just sensible people who are worried that the government has got this all wrong. Spare a thought, please, for Telegraph columnist Alison Pearson's presumably only two friends who she claimed on Saturday were, and I quote, absolutely furious with the government and that they were unilaterally leaving lockdown. And I think we all have to ask ourselves, where are they going?
0: (laughs) Unilaterally leaving lockdown is uh, an interesting phrase.
2: It really is. I mean Alison Pearson lives in Cambridge, so um I can I can clarify that, that there's there's nothing open here. I mean unilaterally leaving lockdown to just go for a walk is exactly the same as taking your government mandated walk. So yeah. Well <laughs> I mean unilaterally suggests I mean that it's a choice they took by themselves, but it seems like this a choice they've made with other people there, so Sorry, I've become our language bod today, but no. Maybe those
1: two people
2: are going to meet up with each other. Maybe. Maybe. Alison Pearson is a fucking knobber. She
0: absolutely is. Hannah, if you are going to push me on this one, I will have to agree that (laughs) Alison Pearson is a fucking nobber.
2: I was once in a lift with her at Cambridge train station. And so however long it takes a lift to go up, one stop was like, I don't know, 30 seconds, something like that. And it took absolutely every inch of self-control not to just lean quietly to her and whisper in her ear, you're a cunt. (laughs) And then just not say anything else and just let the lift go up. Um, Now, you may have seen over the weekend that North Korean leader and squashed jelly baby Kim (laughs) Jong-un may be dead. Or perhaps like me, you read that hashtag as Kim Young Undead, which sounds like a Seth Rogan film and a lot less batshit than some of the stuff that's been going on this week. Fair. As I say this, I've no idea if he's alive or dead or what's killed him. I mean, it can't be coronavirus. Surely no world leader would be stupid enough to. Oh, hang on. Oh dear. According to various reports, KJU is either dead, nearly dead or in a vegetative state. In any case, he sounds like he's got a better handle on things than Donald Trump, who, were this a film, is just one scene away from being removed from a press conference, straight-jacketed onto a trolley, shouting, My sunbed gives me magical powers! <laughs> as actress and activist Sarah Poley pointed out in the glorious tweet a few weeks or so ago, comparisons to films aren't really a thing anymore, as none of us would buy this shit were it fiction. Budding screenwriters have just had all sorts of narrative doors open to them if the new frame of reference is, is this more or less likely than the President of America suggesting we mainline Domestos? A flurry of activity refuting Trump's claims, including from the manufacturers of a number of household cleaning brands, led to the White House claiming that they had been made sarcastically, which suggests to me they don't know what sarcasm is, or... That they are incredibly clever people with perfectly formed genitals. (laughs) In conclusion, don't drink Wendelin people or vote for morons. Anyone want some
0: good news? Yes, please. please. Sophie Willan's brilliant Alma's Not Normal has been given the full series Go Ahead. Hooray! The pilot, still available on iPlayer, is a belter and the story draws on Sophie's chaotic childhood as the daughter of a heroin addict and her experiences in later life as an escort. It has an absolutely banging cast as well, with Siobhan Finneran, Lorraine Ashbourne and Jade Adams supporting Sophie's alma. Here's to more great women-led telly. Hannah, I believe you also have some great news for future
2: eyes. I do. I have some great news for theatre fans. Remember theatres? Old buildings, big curtains, smell of the grease paint and all that? Well, big news for your diaries. Your 2021 diaries, that is. I'm assuming we've all set fire to our (laughs) 2021s. Jez Butterworth's award-winning play, Jerusalem, is to return to the West End next year, with Mark Rylance returning to the role of rooster. I mean, it's exciting enough that any venues will be open by next year. But keep your eye out for more announcements, because when I saw that in 2011, it was the best thing I've ever seen in a theatre. Anyone hoping to get a theatre fix sooner than that can content themselves with the fact that the iPlayer is now offering several Royal Shakespeare Company performances, including Christopher Eccleston's Macbeth, which, again, I saw at the theatre, and they played it like a full-on horror, and it was absolutely cracking. Well,
1: I'm not sure how much of an impact the cancellation of the Chelsea Flower Show would have had on any of our lives, particularly.
2: I'd really like to go. I've never been, but I would really like to well, go Well, that doesn't
1: surprise me entirely, Hannah, but uh, a bit of bit of blooming lovely news, nonetheless.
2: I saw what you did there. Yeah, thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, Jen, it's a shame local newspapers aren't a thing anymore. You could write some great headlines.
1: <laughs> the show, which has taken place at the Royal Hospital in Chelsea every year since 1913, was due to take place this year in May, but it's been called off because, obviously, lockdown. But it has subsequently been announced that it will now take place virtually. So
2: if you're bored of darts...
0: What? Uh,
2: As if... She doesn't know us at all, does she? No.
1: Come May the 18th to 23rd, you can have a squiz at the garden of a leading designer, florist or gardening personality online every day plus there's going to be other events such as interactive q a's gardening clubs for families and demonstrations of techniques for growing and maintaining plants so i should probably
0: tune in to that actually oh uh, yeah just for some house plants. tips yeah yeah My lovely friend Al has an allotment and he's on Twitter as at Al underscore allotment which is genius but he made a little video of him picking the first asparagus of the season then he'd taken a stove and a pan and he just boiled it and ate it on his allotment and it was the best moments of calm I've had in weeks it was (laughs) lovely. That sounds
1: sort of bleak. I've always thought of the Chelsea Flower Show as uh, as something that is really exclusively for posh people. So I think the idea, as the charity says, to inspire more people to get growing is actually rather lovely. And Hannah, you've got your spade from home base now. So the gardener's world, see, is your oyster. Here
0: she is. I don't know where yes. she's been, but she's here. She's watched Rocky 1 and 2 and she's a different person.
2: <laughs> yeah. More news next week.
0: Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where Women and Equalities Minister Liz Truss dismisses the need for decent representation as tokenistic because... Pork markets. Truss, responding to questions regarding gender imbalance at coronavirus press conferences, said... Excessive focus on what gender the politician helming the televised briefing was does a disservice to women. Classic Tory. Since it began six weeks ago, the press conference has only once been taken by a woman, Home Secretary Priti Patel, despite a plethora of more junior cabinet members helming the afternoon briefing, including Education Secretary Gavin Williamson, Transport Secretary Grant Shapps, and Michael Gove, Minister for Drinking Water and Clapping. Oh, sorry, Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. Same diff. Doesn't matter, says Truss. It's all a meritocracy. Ah, meritocracy a concept that neatly glosses over prejudice discrimination and centuries of inequality that continue today see also the paucity of black people differently abled people and non-heterosexual people in positions of power classic tory i believe that women are equally as capable as men that we need more women in politics said truss yes liz yes but she added Uh oh here it comes (laughs) I don't like the idea that someone should just appear at a press conference or in a media interview because they are a woman. I think we should be focusing on the right people to present at the press conference. Cue more from the Minister Without Portfolio, eh? Uh, A very quick Sexism of the Week edition. Those of you with Apple smartphones might like the following experiment. Tap in the phrase Silver Fox and a suggested emoji of a human appears. I'll leave you to guess what sex it is tapping in silver vixen doesn't get a suggested emoji at all to which i say fuck you iphone my sparkling
2: roots are glorious yeah agreed yeah, yeah. All with, all with the last bit not with the, the not with trust.
1: it's a bit of a worry that that's the view the uh, minister for women and equality <laughs> <laughs> you've you've failed on your remit there liz
2: Hello Hannah here. Now as you know this is usually the point in the podcast where I interrupt to say something about you being able to give us some money via the magic of Patreon but I know everyone's having to tighten their belts financially and also that there are probably some very worthy charities that you are supporting with your time and money. And so how can you continue to help us? Well you can listen to us. If you're furloughed and you're at home or if you're taking your regular hour walk, why not have a route around through our back catalogue to see if there's anything you haven't listened to? Because listens equals money for us. Equally, you could spend this time spreading the news about standard issue. I know a lot of you already do this, but if you see anyone twitter asking for suggestions of what they could listen to in this time just get in there and say standard issue thank you all for your help and support at this time and that includes everyone who already supports us on patreon
0: i am joined on the phone by sam hudson communications and fundraising manager at women for refugee women hello sam
3: Hi, thank you for having me on the podcast.
0: Thanks very much for coming to chat to me. Let us start with the basics. Tell us about the work that Women for Refugee Women does.
3: So Women for Refugee Women is a small charity based in London that supports refugee and asylum-seeking women. And we work in three ways. The first way is to empower women who have come to the UK to seek safety. And we do this by providing English lessons but also other activities to support women on their journey to rebuild their lives in the UK Mm -hmm. and also to enable them to be able to speak out about their experiences. And then we also work to influence the public and also policymakers to try and make lasting change to improve the situation for refugee women as they rebuild their lives here. Mm -hmm. But obviously, at the moment, our work is looking quite different because we're all on lockdown so on the 16th of March we had to close our face-to-face activities which is well it was very difficult because the women that we work with are very isolated at the best of times and they really kind of rely on this face-to-face contact and being able to support one another and be alongside women who have gone through similarly difficult experiences.
0: Yeah, I totally understand that. I chatted a couple of weeks ago to Dawn Redshaw, who runs two women's refuges in Salford. And it's a similar situation in that that kind of solidarity really helps women who... And I know a lot of the women you look after and support have been through some really atrocious experiences.
3: Yeah, exactly. And so many of these women have survived really severe sexual violence and war persecution. So they've come to the UK carrying all of this trauma. And then the asylum process here is so difficult It's really hard for women to get a fair hearing on their cases and many of the women that we're supporting end up living homeless, hungry and vulnerable to further abuse here in the UK. So to have that personal contact and support Between one another is really important and now is a very difficult time. But I understand
0: you've all been manning the phones quite relentlessly and making sure that there is still contact there.
3: Yeah so we're working with our absolutely amazing volunteers who normally support the drop-in to call around 300 women in London about once a week which has been great. So we're just checking in with them seeing how they're doing but also referring them on for other support. So um, we have a partnership with Notre Dame Refugee Centre and their advisors are giving really good quality advice to women on their immigration situations, Mm -hmm. but also connecting them with other forms of support like food banks. And then we've been providing um, like emergency hardship grants for women who are in crisis situations so that they can buy food and also doing things like topping up their phones so that they can stay in touch with one another Mm -hmm. and trying to enable women to have better access to technology. Because for those of us who are able to access the internet and have computers and phones, this time is a lot easier because you can stay in touch. And there's so many incredible initiatives springing up to help people combat isolation and stay creative and develop new skills. And this is something that lots of the women that we are supporting just aren't able to do. Mm -hmm. So that kind of support to link people up and get more connected has been really important.
0: Oh, it's vital, isn't it? It's amazing how much we take that for granted to the point where people are complaining about too many zoom calls and you know i'm one of yes. them
4: <laughs> yeah uh, but exactly. it is it's
0: an absolute lifeline and if you're already struggling yeah i can't imagine life without it right now so well done for trying to connect those women that's amazing
3: thank you yeah it's great and those women that have now got laptops or phones have really been noticing the difference we've got a um, drama group who normally meets every week at the in london and they're now singing together and writing poetry over video calls which is just lovely it's great to see all that solidarity (laughs) and yeah support
0: what is it like on the ground right now for asylum seekers and refugees because it seems they tend to get neglected anyway and i can't imagine that coronavirus has changed that for the better
3: yeah exactly all of the difficulties that women were already facing are being exacerbated So, for example, this week we've been supporting a woman who had nowhere to stay. She was hopping between different friends to sleep on their sofas and obviously now she's not able to do this because yeah. people are self isolating so she had absolutely nowhere to go and it's been such a challenge to find somewhere for her because services like street bank are overwhelmed and we haven't been able to book her a hotel for example because yeah. they're all closed or only providing spaces for key workers so those women who are kind of pushed to the margins and have exhausted all other options. The normal routes for getting them support are closed down at the moment.
0: Gosh, it's, it's a real challenge, isn't it?
3: Yeah, and the the other group of women that we're particularly concerned about are those who are detained at Yarlswood Detention Centre in Bedfordshire. There have been frequent calls
0: for the safe release of the women of Yarlswood Detention Centre for, well, for years. But most recently yeah. because of, of COVID-19 and it hasn't been answered. It's it's
3: not great in there, is it? No. So th- there was a confirmed case of COVID-19 in Yarlswood at the end of March, and we had real concerns because the women who we were speaking to in the detention centre at that time told us that it was an absolute state of chaos. They weren't being given proper advice on how to keep safe. They didn't have access to hand sanitizer and soap, so they weren't able to be washing their hands as frequently as they should. There was just this kind of general sense of misinformation, chaos and real fear and anxiety for the women who were still in detention. We've been connecting the women that we're in touch with with various different solicitors who are able to challenge their detention because the way that the Home Office normally justifies the legality of detaining someone is that it's a last resort prior to removing or deporting them from the country. Now, while airports are shut down and all flights are grounded, there is no way of doing this. So detaining women at the moment is pretty much pointless. Mm -hmm. We've done lots of research in the past about how traumatic it can be to detain someone who has already survived sexual violence, torture, trafficking, or has been incarcerated in their country of origin we're seeing this trauma really exacerbated at the moment because there's this additional fear that women are locked up in close quarters with one another in the midst of a pandemic.
0: Yeah, and to be clear, that is there 20 women in Yarlswood at the moment?
3: Yeah, so we think around 20 women.
0: It's really hard to get information about Yarlswood, isn't it? Yeah,
3: it's, uh, there's a complete lack of transparency. Mm. So everything we know is from speaking to women who are detained at the moment.
0: So Sam, let's try and find a little tiny bit of silver lining in this massive fucking dark grey cloud. What can we do to help refugee women? How can we all get involved in helping?
4: Well,
3: I think one of the best ways to help at the moment is to join your local mutual aid groups. We've been seeing just how fantastic these groups are at helping people in real situations of need. And it's great. I think to see this kind of solidarity and communities really coming together to support one another I hope that this will extend beyond the current crisis and that women who were were previously isolated from their local communities will have kind of new access to support and to be able to feel part of where they're living.
0: And where can people find out more about the important work that Women for Refugee Women is doing?
3: You can head over to our website, which is www.refugeewomen.co.uk. Or you can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. All of our accounts are at, and then the number four, Refugee Women.
0: And I imagine you would be quite happy if people wanted to chuck you a little bit of cash, right? Yes,
3: that would make a huge difference because the key ways that we're supporting women at the moment are to give them these hardship grants to enable them to buy food and to meet their immediate needs and also things like topping up phones. We're also working with partners in different regions of the UK who are doing very similar work. So any financial support is also really appreciated by them so that they can make sure that women in other parts of the country are similarly supported.
0: Great. There is a donate page on your website, I believe. So listeners, if you can spare a few quid, please head over there. Sam thank you so so much for chatting to us it's I mean it's horrible to think that women who already must feel really abandoned and isolated are going through even more of a ringer so thank you for explaining what's going on and thank you for all the amazing work that you
3: do. Oh thank you and thanks to all your listeners.
1: I am joined via the magical powers of Zoom by Hannah Turner-Vokes owner and director of Paper Dress Vintage. Hello Hannah. Hello. So Hannah, paper dress is a many splendid thing. Do you want to tell us a little bit about paper dress?
5: It is, yeah. So kind of initially 12 years ago when we opened in Shoreditch, I opened the store as a vintage clothing boutique in right in the height of kind of trash fashion, Shoreditch kind of trendies. And we were down there for kind of four or five years. We hit a few economic kind of troubles in 2008, like the rest of the world. And we started to innovate and uh, do parties. So we'd get bands, get them playing in the window, we'd kind of move the shop around, sell beers from bins. At the time, I was dating a young chap called Stephen Dix, who also managed bands, so he was a very useful ally, later husband and co-owner. We were insured it for kind of seven or eight years, and then we moved to Hackney Central developers in Shoreditch slightly pushed us out but mm. to be honest it was it was a good move to come to Hackney Central anyway I think for us Shoreditch had had its day and the building that we were in the next door building came up and so we opened a yoga studio so balancing a few different things generally the, the loves of my life dancing drinking shopping and doing yoga <laughs> which is
1: to be honest that sounds like a very nice way to live your life <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you can make that your job <laughs> happy days boxes. Yeah. <laughs> so, obviously, yeah, happy days because those are all lovely things. But yeah. at the moment, slightly difficult days because all of those things are quite badly impacted on by the current situation.
5: Yes, hugely. I mean, we we, we felt like things were going quite well. Obviously, COVID nineteen and kind of mid March changed all that. Um, like everybody. I guess we kind of fairly instantly had to adapt in any ways that we could. The government kind of saying avoiding places, you know, not not going to places rather than saying instantly close was a little bit fuzzy and confusing. But we closed the business on, I think, the 16th of March. So just the bar, the shop yeah just before when when there was a little bit of encouragement and also quite a lot of you know fear and responsibility for businesses do you want to be a space that people come to when there's this pandemic and this kind of virus spreading do you want so, to
1: put yourself at risk as well do you want to put your staff at risk and that's obviously difficult. part of it
5: yeah and you know we were being super hygienic we never bought so much hand sanitizer <laughs> but actually um <laughs> it's only so far that stuff can go it really smells bad I guess the main focus instantly was transferring all the yoga classes online because that was something that we felt we could do and we could translate. So we, we pretty much put the whole timetable online and this wonderful medium of Zoom became everyone's kind of second nature. So there's a lot of activity doing that. The shop, we put on the website some kind of Etsy stuff, which has been very slow going. And I guess that that first week there was a real panic from our sense because the main breadwinner of our business is the bar, you know, the bar and the event space. The others hold their own. But really, in terms of paying the bills, that's our main breadwinner. And we couldn't see any way of kind of transferring that online. So kind of facing yeah, the main income being totally cut, we somewhat panicked. And I guess there's, there was a lot of fear and kind of confusion in the first couple of weeks which is actually when we chose to launch our crowdfunder, kind of immediately got out there and my partner Steve worked very hard putting this whole proposal together to say, support us, support our staff, support our freelancers, because we we work with so many different, you know, the the sound engineers are freelance. The bands obviously come in, we've got staff to worry about. So we we launched that as a kind of Uh quick panic, we need to do something because it did feel like the, the government didn't give us an awful lot of clear information in those those first kind of couple of weeks. And, you know, that's been really supportive. The crowdfund has done really well and it's felt really lovely kind of looking at people's supportive comments. I think people are keen to support their local industries, especially, I think a lot of people live in Hackney because there's lots of independents, yeah. there's lots of the little guys and we've got a lot of comments saying, yeah, wishing as well in that sense. In terms of government help with things, that first week did feel very unclear and and very muddy, which I think caused a lot of unnecessary panic. (laughs) The money that they have since kind of launched and we finally got our grant on Friday, which is just a lifesaver. I think for smaller businesses like us, it makes a really big difference. So we got the 25,000 pounds, which with that, we can see the next few months will survive, how long it goes on who knows, you know, and I think that's, that's the real worry that, you know, we, we can hope that the business will reopen in some fashion, but it's working out how long it's going to be before we can kind of get to a stage where we pay the bills. And I think there's going to have to be a lot of changes in the way that we operate and hopefully in the way that our landlords kind of (laughs) respond in terms of um, our rent payments and things like that
1: your husband steve so he wrote an article for clash which was highlighting a couple of the issues that small businesses and particularly kind of arts venues and clubs and bars face especially in big cities like london where rent is just stupid Money, yeah, in the article, he highlighted something that GAY had posted online, which said, I think they have four venues, and I think they said in this tweet that they would be in arrears of their rent to the tune of something like 800,000 pounds <laughs> by June, which is yeah. madness. Now, obviously, you're not going to be in quite such a bad situation, but rents
5: yeah. are really high, they're really high. Yeah, and I mean, um, so we have a slightly complicated situation with our landlords. We sublet the downstairs Mm -hmm. building where the yoga studio is. So that means we're responsible for that rent as well as ours. None of those businesses are currently working or able to pay us any rent. So, I mean, our our monthly rent total is about 10 grand. You know, that £25,000 is two and a half months if we're paying full rent. The conversation that we had with our landlord and their response has changed interestingly over the of the past kind of couple of months. So, initially, there was a very firm holding of, you can pay half rent now, but you're going to have to pay that money back. And I think a lot of landlords with the idea of, you know, we still need to make that money up. Which, as a business trying to reopen in a climate like this, is just you know the idea of it is terrifying. So, we kind of sat with that for a month and then went back to them and just said, look. There's lots of landlords that are offering a rent holiday when they can that they're saying, you know, you don't have to pay anything, which is brilliant. But I think the difficulty is for landlords that have the equivalent of a mortgage, there hasn't been this kind of mortgage freeze or the government hasn't kind of enforced this idea that if you have a loan, you don't have to pay it or you can kind of pause that for a bit. And a couple of the people that Steve's been talking to in particular, the Music Venues Trust, which have been lobbying for all the kind of nighttime businesses for their landlords or for there to be an ease in terms of uh, mortgage payments and rent payments. There's actually something called the Big Freeze, which is the Nighttime Industries Association, which is basically lobbying and, and calling for the government to, freeze um, landlords' rent repayments or, or loan, loans on properties. And I think the point that he made in the, the article, no one really should be prospering at this time. No one should be making lots of money. So in terms of landlords, I think it's, it's quite a very slow transition in terms of their mindset of thinking, not only are you not going to make money out of this, but actually you might have to suffer like the rest of us, that you know this is a, a really unusual time and no businesses are making lots of well. That's probably not true. There might be a fraction I of those it. are doing all right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, toilet roll producers but... yeah, that's true. and takeaway companies might be doing OK. Mm. But on the scale of things, there's you know, the, the economy is not going to boom and it's going to be difficult for everyone. And I think that it would be really helpful if the government laid out some lines of, of, of letting that kind of filter down and, and saying for landlords that there has to be a rent freeze. That actually, you know, um, whether it be now or in the upcoming months, there has to be some kind of pause on that to allow businesses and landlords, you know, that I think they're lobbying it for, for it too, because they're scared that they're not going to have any businesses that can come into their properties, you know.
1: <laughs> well, that's the thing. If, if loads of businesses go bankrupt, go who's going to rent yeah. the buildings from them? Where are they going to make their money from going forwards? Yeah. In terms of the government's response, your small businesses were a little bit sort of sold down the river at first because there was this whole, like, we're not going to tell you, you what have to. to do, basically. Yeah. And, and I think there was quite a lot of chat at the time about, well, they don't want to upset their friends in, in the insurance you know yeah. sector or yeah, whatever, yeah, whether sure. or not that's true, who knows. <laughs> so the instruction wasn't really firm enough and it feels to me, I don't know if you feel like this, but there's a bit of an abdication of responsibility in a lot of things. So it's kind of like you hear a lot of of ministers sort of saying well we hope businesses will do the right thing like by their staff and stuff like that and it's like well come on guys like
5: that's, we we need clear direction yeah. and i think that's the problem all the way along that it's been so fuzzy and less responsibility of them saying this is what should happen and, and this is what we're telling you to do and you know that's kind of the government's job <laughs> <It's> <laughs> their hands are not tied are they do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah the furloughing scheme and stuff like that and that the grant money has been brilliant but it it all came kind of you know through the through the fog in some ways and I think the one thing that we would really like to see you know that's kind of done that happened in terms of lifting some of these lockdown rules make them clear like say you can do this or you can't do that because there's a bit of a worry that if there's there's cloudiness on it that you know you open your business and you either get slated or 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 it's unsafe you mm-hmm. know you, as a business you want a reputation of of doing what's good for your staff for your customers but if there are not clear guidelines on that, it's gonna be really complicated and and yeah, potentially dangerous. I mean no one knows do they what, <laughs> well, what the people hold that this right. not gonna go away, you know.
1: <laughs> it's all based on science apparently. Who's science though? Anyway, <laughs> well that brings me neatly to my next point, which is that I know in London particularly and again like I don't want to be too London centric, but I I don't really know what the picture is over the rest of the country particularly, but I know yeah. in London there's been a lot of noise about venues being closed down over a period of time to, you know, make make way for crossrail or or just luxury flats. Places like, particularly in Hackney, we both live in Dalston. has yeah. seen huge amounts of change recently yeah. in that respect. So one of the other things about the government not being clear, I think, is that people might not feel like they can go out when the lockdown ends if the if the instruction isn't clear people will not necessarily have confidence in going out and they need to feel safe in order to do that what do you yeah. see in terms of like a longer term picture on this
5: well, I mean I think it's difficult to project isn't well of everything? course yeah so, <laughs> you're kind of alien but I mean you know at the minute we're we're looking potentially at the end of the year before the the bar can open or the the music venue potentially maybe you know that's that's what they're talking about and you know if it's about gatherings of under 100 or under 50 all of those things as we say need to be really clear because yeah, if you're if you're wanting to go out and have fun, which we're all desperate to do, frankly I am anyway. <laughs> um, you want, but you want to know that it's safe, and you want to know that you're you're not causing any harm to yourself or to other people. So it, it is really important that um, the guidelines are clear. And you know, for us, we're just going to have to make changes in some ways. I'm sure we'll have to make changes in the way that we run all three of the businesses. And I think ongoing help is going to be required, whether that's direction or financial or as we're saying kind of you know landlords accepting that the astronomical rents that they were charging because we're in in London or wherever you are that they're going to have to kind of recalibrate those and and work with with where we are because there's going to be a lot of businesses that won't reopen i've got a number of friends whose businesses they just had to go look we can't we can't do it which is heartbreaking but it's what we're facing at the minute so i think i mean for us we're we're pretty hardy and, and we've got lots of things going on so I I have high hopes of us reopening in some ways and and managing but it's quite unclear at the minute how that's going to work you know it's it's very difficult to to see in what way we're gonna we're gonna manage to do it but I'm sure we will
1: (laughs) with survival in mind you've mentioned that you've got a crowdfunder. If anyone listening wanted to chip you a fiver or plan uh, a
5: future party at Paper Dress, I've seen as one of the options. It is. Yeah. Tickets to our launch party or reopening party. We've also got rounds of drinks. You can hire the venue. You can buy gift vouchers that you can spend now in the online shop or later. Yoga vouchers. If you've never done yoga before, doing it in your own home is quite a... A comfortable place to start, um, mm-hmm. and also just, I think, an option of like tipping the sound guy or tipping our bar staff. Like, if you've been to the place before, if you want to throw a couple of quid, um, every little does help. And we are making sure that that money goes to our freelancers, goes to all the staff, and and everybody that's kind of helped make Paper Dress what it is. So yeah, it's Paper Dress Vintage on Crowdfund.
1: Excellent. If you're not local to Hackney, which lots of our listeners won't be, and and you wanted to. Maybe think about another local business. A lot of businesses will have schemes such as this. And and I think a lot of people are asking, basically, if you would spend a tenner at, I don't know, your hairdressers or your, well, you spend a lot more than a tenner at hairdressers in (laughs) London. But like if you would spend that at some point in the next six months at whatever business, a lot of people are offering vouchers and things like that so that they can get the money now and help them to remain exactly. or help them to be able to open again so that you can then get your haircut in three months time or, or whatever
5: yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing and I'm, as you say lots of kind of small independent uh, businesses will be doing that and that's exactly what we're offering basically help us out by giving us some money now and we'll make sure you have a wonderful time in the future
1: <laughs> excellent that sounds like a good deal to me okay well hannah yeah obviously wishing you guys all the best for a speedy return to yes, business very much again Hello there listener, Jen here to ask you a little favour if I may. If you're not doing so already, you can follow us on all of the social medias. Well, not all of them because we're old and we don't know what all of them do. But on Twitter, we are at Standard Issue UK. On Facebook, we are Standard Issue Magazine. And on Instagram, where it would be particularly helpful if you would follow us, we are at Standard Issue Podcast. Also on Twitter, you will find me at Inspira Gen, Mickey at Mixter Noonan, and Hannah at That Dunleavy. Ah, go on, give us a follow.
6: Recent BBC programme The Restaurant That Burns Off Calories sparked outrage before it was even shown. To find out why, I chatted to mental health campaigner, author and all-round warrior Hope Virgo. The title of the show in itself gives a pretty clear indication of the topic, which I think anybody worried about how much they eat could feel pretty upset about. However, there's a bigger risk for people who have experienced or are at risk of developing an eating disorder. Can you explain why you felt the show was so dangerous in that respect?
4: No, definitely. So firstly, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, I was absolutely appalled. For me, the issues were around the kind of lack of understanding and the lack of clear messaging that came across in the programme. It was all about how if you do eat food, you've got to burn off this amount of calories. Mm. And for people with eating disorders that is already something they struggle with it's something that we struggle with that we have to then learn how to eat we have to learn how to kind of listen to our bodies again and creating that mindset and pushing that mindset on individuals is really really unhealthy because it's not accurate and i think as well the thing that really bothered me is the fact that actually everyone's bodies are totally different and kind of we all need a different amount of calories we all need to do a different amount of exercise every day and the show was just so kind of one size fits all And what could have been a quite interesting piece, kind of educating kind of people on healthy exercise and healthy eating, it turned into shaming people for eating any amount of food in a restaurant. Mm. And what people with eating disorders will take away from that is that actually we should be earning our food on a day to day basis. And again, that's just not the right way to go about it.
6: I know that I've read some responses from the show and the producers about how we do need to understand how our bodies use calories and you know that it it could well help some people who do eat too much perhaps but obviously like you say it's so triggering for people with eating disorders but even just generally as a woman myself I don't have an or have experienced an eating disorder and I find the amount of messaging around reducing calories burning off calories you know needing to look like x y and z I find that quite distressing myself but I do appreciate that we need to live healthy lives and there does need to be some education around that. Do you have any ideas of how we could better communicate that?
4: Yeah, so firstly, I think it's important that we're not scaring people and kind of encouraging people to create these unhealthy relationships. The way that the programme on Monday was set out was, like I said, all about kind of earning your food, which creates that dangerous, unhealthy message. And again, it's not educating people on how it's doing. What we should be doing instead is actually looking at what individuals need. We shouldn't be focusing on calories and exercise. We should should be looking at actually healthy living and healthy lifestyle and getting people to understand more about their bodies and find a way for people to actually listen to their bodies so much more. And I think for me, like, something that I've struggled with throughout my illness is exercising obsessively. Mm. And I'm in a very good place with it now. I manage my recovery really well. But actually, it's programs like this that then get you to kind of rethink that and think, oh, maybe I'm not doing enough. Maybe I should be doing more. And particularly at the moment, there's this time of huge uncertainty and pushing out this messaging at the moment where every single day on social media, we're bombarded again with kind of putting on weight during lockdowns a terrible thing, or we should be going out and exercising this much. And this program just kind of complements all of that unhealthy messaging. So I think the main thing, like I said, is the education. So educating kind of the whole of society on healthy living It's about getting into schools and educating kind of teachers, but also parents on exercise and healthy eating. And then if you've got children who maybe struggle with food, whether it's they're eating too much or they're not eating enough, it's about working with those individuals to actually work out what would help them. And I think quite often with eating disorders, we forget that the eating and the kind of unhealthy coping mechanism of kind of eating certain foods or exercising all the time is is actually a symptom of what's going on it's a coping mechanism to life Mm. and if we get to that root cause then actually we can then kind of kick all of that back into place and make it easier for that person
6: let's talk a bit about your experience of anorexia because i don't know if people realize just how devastating eating disorders can be and I know that you spent many many months in a mental health hospital when you were younger so if you could tell us just a little bit about your experience and what you believe led to you developing an eating disorder if indeed you you understand that yeah
4: I developed anorexia when I was about 12 13 years old and I think actually the cause of my eating disorder was kind of I had quite a dysfunctional family life um, I was also sexually abused and kind of living with all of this stuff that felt totally out of my control, but also living with all of these feelings that I didn't want to feel, I had to find a way to cope with it. And for me, that came out in the form of food. And the anorexia was like this best friend. It was this voice in my head kind of telling me what I should do all the time, giving me this reassurance, giving me this real sense of value and purpose. And throughout kind of the four-year period when I hid it from everyone around me, I didn't actually think there was anything the matter with me. I was convinced that if I lost more weight, if I counted my calories more, if I did more exercise, then everything would slowly start to slot into place. And I would gradually begin to feel better about everything. And I didn't realize actually how dangerous what I was doing was. So kind of fast forward those four years and my school ended up getting in touch with my mum. I went to my GP and then I went to the Children's Adolescent Mental Health Services, so CAMS. Mm. but the really frustrating thing which I've kind of touched on with eating disorders is that people who have eating disorders are often in that denial about it you often don't really think there's anything the matter with you Mm. and for me that was the issue I went to hospital and I didn't think that I needed to be there I got really cross with everyone around me for telling me that I should be there I shouted all the time at people who tried to get me to eat and I was convinced that they were trying to take away this one thing in my life that just made my life feel amazing this one thing that helped me to just not feel anything and then eventually um, I was admitted to live in hospital where I spent a year so learning about food exercise and learning to just talk about how I felt but I think the thing with eating disorders which we quite often forget is that even when your weight restored you do still struggle with food you still struggle mentally and it takes so much longer for that mental aspect to catch up yeah, And I think that's what makes it really difficult at the moment. And particularly with programs like this, actually, you've got all these people who are struggling with food who look OK from the outside, but mentally they could be just tormenting themselves. And for me, that's something that I've really had to kind of learn, I guess, throughout my recoveries, just how to start talking about things, how to start processing things in a healthy way and reminding myself that actually, if I go and do so much exercise to burn off calories, I'm not going to feel any better at the end of it. But actually, if I'm having a bad day, it's about talking about it and processing it in that more healthy way.
6: Obviously, many different issues and experiences can lead to developing disordered eating. But just thinking about diet culture, because it obviously does play a huge role in it. From your point of view, how can we smash this dangerous perception that we all need to be thin to love ourselves and to respect ourselves?
4: I think it's a that's a very good question and um, I think firstly like it's for me it's so important to realize that like you said that like, this is something that affects everyone this whole mixed messaging and actually I do a lot of work in schools and in the schools work I always come across young people who are fixated on the fact that if they get really skinny then their whole life will make sense mm. and what we've basically done through this whole diet culture and This obsession with our bodies being a certain way and this obsession with shrinking ourselves to a certain size is we're creating this society which is kind of normalizing disordered eating and normalizing hating our bodies. Mm. And I think for me, it's about having these conversations and actually calling out diet culture on what it's doing realizing that it's profiting off making people feel really bad about ourselves mm. and particularly at the moment actually I think they need to step it up I think that I think the government needs to do more to actually challenge this and actually to make people aware that actually these kinds of messagings is just so unhelpful I know that two weeks ago I got an email randomly from like a marketing a random marketing company telling me um, the headline was This is how to burn calories when you're working from home. Mm. And I was like, this is wrong on so many levels. And I think when that happens, it's about reporting things. It's about complaining to that organisation, picking that organisation up on it publicly on social media, if you feel able to do that, or picking them up on it kind of privately, if that works for you. And then going out there and campaigning, kind of working with the government, working with local authorities, working with local councils, to actually get them to understand that, again, this messaging isn't healthy. And mm. I know, was it, I think it was last year or the year before, where Sadiq Khan um, banned that ad on the cheek, banned the ad about yeah. um, getting beach body ready. Yeah. And again, it's things like that that we need to see more pushback on that. And I know it's really difficult. Mm. And I know it's hard to kind of start to even think about accepting your body the way it is at times when we are bombarded with this. But the more we talk about it and the more we challenge it, the better it is and i think as well again like with the media it's about getting them to diversify the kind of people that go on their shows so whether it's a reality tv show or i don't know big brother or love island whatever show it might be actually making sure we have people on those shows who are diverse who mm. don't just fit like a certain kind of image because again that then puts that pressure on and actually it was really sad last must have been a couple of months ago now, I went into a school in South London and I was speaking to a group of girls at the end of the session. And um, one of the girls was just like, oh, the reason that I don't eat is because I want to look like the people on Love Island. Yeah, and I was just like, mate, your life's not going to be any better if you look like that. And actually, you look amazing as it is. So why should we be changing? Mm. Um, but I think, again, it's trying to just get the media, trying to get advertising standards changed. Yeah. And one way of us doing that, I think, kind of from the ground is just not looking at the stuff, not clicking on those ads, not following those ads and reporting it when we see it.
6: Yeah. And and it is, like you say, it's it's... It's in advertising and marketing. It's in culture, TV shows, movies, depending, you know, there's the reality shows, but also, you know, to be a successful actor, like, do you need to look a certain way? And, and even just when we go out shopping, I think I've, I've walked past stores where there's, there've been mannequins who, who, as if they're people. Well, they're not, they're not representative of people, are they? And that's the point because I don't see myself reflected at all. In most of the clothes shops in you know the the imagery that they have the mannequins that they have everything all around us I think is telling us to be thin in terms of the show's timing because obviously like you were saying lockdowns are a stressful and uncertain time for everybody why do you think lockdown might be even more challenging for people living with an eating disorder?
4: So the main things um, I think that have a massive impact. So firstly, eating disorders thrive off isolation. Mm. So at the moment, there's a lot of people on their own having to manage food on their own. Um, And again, like being in that isolation place is really challenging. And I think on that as well, actually, there's something around like the exercising at home and doing boot camps in your house. And I know actually when I was really unwell, I would exercise kind of religiously in isolation on my own. And it just, the whole thing with that takes me back to a really difficult headspace. So I've had to be really careful around not doing that, actually, and not doing anything in like an isolated way. But for some people, they don't have the choice about that. Mm. The other thing that's really difficult at the moment is whether people have had to go home. So whether they're kind of isolating with their family or friends, and maybe not feeling comfortable eating around those kinds of people, or whether people are commenting on their weight if they have gone home. I think there's someone actually messaged me yesterday around the pressure To kind of show that you're not okay during this time. And her fear was that she wants to stay well and she doesn't want to get sick again, but she's worried that if she does stay well, then people will think that she's fine and that she's coping really well. And I think, again, that kind of whole thing around eating disorders being judged so much on physical appearance fuels that kind of idea that to be really struggling, you have to look a certain way or a certain size. Mm -hmm. And then I guess the final thing is just that kind of lack of routine, that lack of structure. And what the eating disorder is doing at the moment to a lot of people is it's trying to suck us back in. It's loving the fact that we're all out of control, that we're all are feeling feelings that we haven't felt for so long, that we've all got so much more time to just feel these emotions that maybe we've buried for so long. And so what it's doing for so many is sucking people back in, telling us that if we just skip lunch today, if we just do an extra fitness class and everything will be OK. And that kind of slowly kind of nagging voice in our heads telling us things like that is wrong on so many levels but for some people it's how they're getting that value and it's how they're switching off those emotions and it's how they're dealing with it and I think for a lot of people it, it is it's a really scary time and it's hard sometimes to voice what we're going through particularly when we feel like there's this pandemic and what we're going through doesn't matter quite as much. But just, I guess, that reminder that actually whatever we're feeling is totally valid. Mm. And we have to try and find a way to talk about it without letting... That voice kind of slowly suck us back in.
6: While we're isolated, obviously we can pick up the phone, but there's a lot of people um, very active on social media. Any tips that you can provide of how to be more aware and supportive of people who may have an eating disorder when you're communicating on social media?
4: Yeah, so with regards to social media, I think it's about being mindful of what you're posting. So if you have been for your exercise, which might be a run outside, or you've done a bit of exercise in your house, or you're doing a fitness challenge online, actually thinking about why you're posting that. Like, are you posting it because you want to, because it makes you happy to post it? And if you are posting it for those reasons, what the kind of people that are following you, how will that make them feel? Will it be triggering for them? Will it make them feel bad about it? So I think at the moment it is important because we're not doing much else to post about. A lot of people seem to be posting these fitness challenges And you do just have to think about actually the impact that's having. I think as well, there's quite a lot of calling out at the moment on like this hashtag Corona calories, which is basically like the amount of calories that people are eating during Mm. lockdown and shaming people into eating certain foods, particularly unhealthy foods. And again, like using that terminology is so unhelpful for people with eating disorders. It's probably unhelpful for everyone. But actually, we shouldn't be sharing that sort of stuff. And we shouldn't be. Sharing memes around how it's going to be terrifying if we put on weight during lockdown because it adds that pressure to people with eating disorders, but it also is making it out like being fat is a terrible thing when actually it's not. Mm. So I think again, it's just that mindfulness of what we're posting and why we're posting it. And then if you have had an eating disorder yourself, I think it's about just like being mindful of what you're looking at. So if you're seeing content like this that's triggering you or upsetting you, maybe try and unfollow that content, maybe try and kind of flood your feed with recovery stuff instead of being bombarded with all of that diet stuff.
6: Yeah, the block button is definitely helpful, isn't it? Especially Amazing. on Twitter. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing all of those tips. If you want to learn more about Hope's story and her journey into recovery, do check out her brilliant memoir. I've read it. It's really fascinating and it provides lots of hope, which it should do, given her name. It's called Stand Tall Little Girl and it's available from Trigger Publishing, Amazon and all the usual online places. Thank you, Hope.
4: Thank you very much. You play ball like a girl!
1: Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks. That time of the week where we look impatiently at the clock, slash calendar, slash world outside, as we discuss all things women's sport. So no, not a lot going on in women's sport or any sport as this pesky virus continues to wreak havoc with all things, but a couple of developments in the last week to bring you up to speed with. Unfortunately, they do mostly involve men. First up, you'll remember a few instances on this podcast where I've been wildly speculating as to how some major events in the sporting calendar might be rescheduled over the next couple of years. That feels like a weird thing to say, next couple of years. The men's Euros were postponed until next summer, which is when the women's Euros were due to take place, and so to have been the Olympics, which were also due to take place this year which aren't a big deal for men's football but very much are for the women's game leaving everyone wondering what would become of the women's euros well it's been rumored for a while that these would be moved back to 2022 but that announcement has now been made It will be interesting to see how that plays out alongside the Men's World Cup, also due to take place that year, though potentially not at the same time because that is what happens when your governing body is run by, let's say for legal reasons, interesting people who make interesting decisions and you end up awarding the host country status somewhere where it's not actually possible to play football during the summer months. One interesting head of FIFA, Sepp Blatter, was. In related news, it also emerged last week that Phil Neville, head coach of the Lionesses, would step down from his position when his contract expires next summer. Unbelievably, some of the coverage of this has focused on Neville guiding the Lionesses to success at the 2019 She Believes Cup and a fourth place finish at the World Cup in the same year. Listener, we finished third in the 2015 world cup and we failed to retain the she believes title this year so what i'm saying and what you have heard me say before is that it's it's not gone terribly well to be honest i'm a bit surprised i don't want to shifty him along a bit sooner with the way the new calendar is falling he'll be due to leave in the same month but crucially ahead of the olympics which I probably don't need to tell you isn't the best way to head into an important tournament. I suppose you'd rather hope they might come to some sort of arrangement with the new boss to start working alongside P Nev a bit earlier, or just, you know, get rid of him before then. I'm sure the FA have got their best people on it. That's a lie, I'm, I'm not sure at all. Meanwhile, moving on to another man, it's Arfed, Roger Federer, that is, who apparently simply has too much time on his hands and has shared his two penneth worth on the future of tennis's governing bodies over on Twitter. He's got two sets of twins, so in theory, he should be pretty busy right now. In a series of tweets last week, the 20 times Grand Slam winner pondered, am I the only one thinking that now is the time for men's and women's tennis to be united and come together as one? Quite a lot of people seem to agree with him. Simona Halep, for example, Garbine Muguruza and even Billie Jean King. It does sound nice, to be fair. One nation under a groove and all that. A strengthened, unified body of the WTA and ATP merging. Perhaps women would get paid a bit more if the advertising spoils were shared. It is possible. It is, however, also possible that a new governing body would lose all focus on women because the men are deemed more important. I would see any battle for something like five set games for women or more emphasis on broadcasting women's matches potentially being hugely compromised if those bodies were to merge. There are going to be some really big challenges, I think, for sport going forward. Just announced this morning, as I record this on Tuesday, Reading women as in the women's Super League football team, has become the first sort of financial casualty of coronavirus. Their players are going to be furloughed alongside the men's under-23 players and many of the club's non-playing staff. So that shows you the gender hierarchy in sport is very much alive and well. And I think women are going to need their own strong voice more than ever. But that is just my opinion what's yours you can give me a shout on twitter if like roger federer you have nothing better to do right now i am at inspira and i'll be back with more women's sport very soon <laughs>
0: Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what disaster left us mourning the unexpected demise of Linda this week?
2: <laughs> this week we watched 1972's The Poseidon Adventure, which, along with The Towering Inferno, is one of the first disaster films I ever watched and is therefore responsible for my love of disaster films and a couple of my weird hang ups when I was a kid. Uh-huh. And this one in particular was being able to hold your breath for long enough to do that swim that they do in this.
1: Yep, totally. Um,
2: yeah, well, obviously, I've got a tick in that box.
1: It could have been a
2: lot of things, to be fair, Yeah, maybe. Like, you know, just not the not just upper body strength. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. upper body strength. Okay, so starring, I mean, a great cast, starring Gene Hackman, Shelley Winters, who we will get to because I completely love in this. Ernest Borgnine, Nine, who you all know I absolutely love. And oddly, Leslie Nielsen. And yeah. there's, you haven't seen Chernobyl... But there was like an accompanying podcast, which is really interesting because it's even more like gruesome historical facts. And in it, the guy who wrote Chernobyl, Craig Maison keeps saying that you have to remember that there was a point in history where the word Chernobyl meant nothing, and that now we can't help but attach all of our preconceived ideas on it. And so you end up saying, Why didn't those people know that stuff? Why didn't, because it... nobody knew this stuff. And that's how I feel watching Leslie Nielsen in this film because. Yeah. There's a point at which you can't imagine him being anything other than taking the piss in that role. Police squad, But there there was a point when he made this that presumably that was a serious casting. But you can see lots of airplane in this. And the little boy in this is basically entirely... The little boy in airplane is basically entirely lifted from the Poseidon adventure. Which is something I don't think i would noticed before having watched this. So basic plot is, card comes up at the top with that thing that they sort of did in the 70s a lot. And then the Coen brothers revived with Fargo. The pretense that this might actually be a real story. And it says, this ship only a few survivors on New Year's Eve, so there you go. We start off in the cockpit, that's not the right word, the bridge. And they're they're being hit by a storm. And then we cut out onto the decks, where we meet a couple of um, passengers, who are obviously going to be important to the plot of this, who appear to be in a different weather format. Also, they're all out, it's... There's a little bit of wind, because Hackman's comb-over's going a bit. But it's not it's not <laughs> the same as what they, they're driving through in the bridge, which is weird. I think the plot is, they have that storm, and they only just survive
0: right. it, and he has a go at the guy, yeah. and then it's another day, okay. or it's a bit later well, on. Well, that makes sense.
2: <clears throat> Basically, there's a row brewing on the bridge between, you know, the dam bosses and mm-hmm. and the captain. And everybody says the word ballast a lot. Like, seriously, <laughs> every other word is ballast. It's because they're top heavy. <laughs> we meet a couple of the passengers, including Ernest Borgnine and his wife, who rather brilliantly or horrifically, depending on where way you look at this, row the entire way through this disaster, which I feel is actually kind of oddly believable, but not the sort of thing that you usually see. His whole demeanour towards her, she's like, a, he's a, a retired cop and she's a former prostitute. And there's a brilliant scene where he's shouting at her through a bathroom window. Don't you want everyone to know that you used to be a prostitute? And she says, I can hear you. I'm like, the whole fucking boat can hear you. Exactly. There is so much shouting. There's a similar bit
0: where um, Leslie Nielsen, the captain, is having a chat with the damn bosses, the owner. And the owner says, can we have a word in private? And then they proceed to yell everything at each other. And there's a lot of other uh, ship staff. Just to their to their left
2: and I thought, well, I mean, it's not very private, is it? No. It all builds to this New Year's Eve party, uh, in which our main characters are all sort of sitting around the, the same table. Um we meet Roddy McDowell, who has one of the worst accents I've I've ever heard in my life. What the fuck I is I think that? it's supposed <gasps> to be Scottish. I think so too. And then we have a band who do you know that someone an Oscar? Fuck yeah, hell. <laughs> Must have been a bleak year. Mm. No other songs released. They're heading to a, no other a jazz, songs jazz festival, despite the fact that they appear to be a Carol King rip-off. So that's a bit odd. It's not jazz it's, at all, no. is it? Like, it's, it's definitely not jazz. No.
0: It's the Carpenters. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so anyway, Borgno's wife's concerned that she might have fucked someone on the boat, which is the weirdest plot, I think, a disaster film's had so far. And then the disaster happens they get hit by a massive wave and they end up upside down and i have to say that scene where they turn upside down is fucking brutal that goes on for ages it's
0: almost as vigorous as the dancing to old lang syne yeah yeah which is uh, that is some vigorous arm shaking But, but
2: we should also mention gene hackman who is a renegade priest which means that he gets to hold girls here when he's got his arm around them so they're at this New Year's Eve party, they sit around telling terrible, terrible jokes uh, with the incredibly substantial cracker hats. I've, I've never seen like, part. I'm surprised they, those hats didn't save them in some way. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so Gene Hackman, he is, what is he Mick? I'm a renegade, he's a renegade. I don't know what that means, apart from he's quite handsy. I, I actually wrote down handsy priest, but I wonder whether that was tautology <laughs> or not. Also, yeah, you can't climb in that gown. You must wear hot pants. This is the 70s. Sarah isn't here this week, as you've probably noticed. She would have fucking killed on this because on her sheet she had, because I know because I wrote it, she had, I'm not just for this shit. She also had waist deep in water and she had, isn't that woman 20 to 30 years younger than you? Because something weird kicks off about now uh, and that's Red Buttons. Excellent name. And the singer who, I mean, there's maybe a 40-year age gap in that. That's weird, isn't it? And she's called Nunny as well. It's all very weird. Yeah. He gives a brilliant piece of advice, which I think means more now than ever, which is don't become a haberdasher.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but We've he's called Red it. Buttons. There was no sorted. other route. Yeah.
2: Then the group splits into two, and the group that follows Gene Hackman climbs a Christmas tree, And gets to a shelf, essentially, where they can manage to escape. And then the group that decides to sit around and do nothing. And, of course, as we know, they're all going to die. And we have this plucky band of survivors. But there's a great bit where he's, like, standing out on that convenient place thing that he could stand up on like it's a balcony. And he's right on the edge of the whole thing. It's like rocking backwards and forwards. And I thought, that is one renegade priest.
1: <laughs> what I would also suggest is a bit renegade about him is that obviously they all climb up the Christmas tree and then the people who are like, "Now nah, we're not going to do that. Then they're like, oh, sh- we're going to die. Yeah, we're going to do that. And they stampede it and it falls down. And he just stands there for a minute. He's thinking about Jesus. He just—he's like—I mean—they could have lifted it back up again. Do you know what I mean? It wouldn't have been that hard. They got it up there in the
0: first place. He just goes, "All right, well." Not only that, Jen. Close the doors very slowly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) but none of those people in that room have
2: been nominated for an oscar gen so they were never going to make it (laughs) fair the door closing is interesting because they don't close doors behind them which seems ridiculous given that water could come in and there's a great bit where gina hackman basically says here we've got to remember he's a priest right because the fact that he basically hugs every woman in a really handsy way every time he gets the opportunity you might be forgiven for thinking he wasn't a priest but he is a he's very Thornbird. very Thornbird. <laughs> yeah oh uh, yeah i mean, I mean the, the idea that that fleabag invented that is is anyway there's a bit where he shouts no one is going to help us which seems like a really bleak worldview coming from someone who thinks that we are being directed by a higher power isn't there and it is a little bit odd to have it in a disaster movie i guess but
0: isn't there an ongoing discussion about faith Throughout
2: the Poseidon adventure. Yeah, yes, yes. And there's also a lot of women just screaming. They're hysterical, <laughs> <Just> Hannah. <laughs> full on screaming women. I mean, obviously, this follows a really like pretty common format. People get picked off as they go along and people like die as they go along. What's really interesting to me is how Shelley Winters and her husband portrayed as the old people in there and that mm. they're really old, to the degree that when they die, you know, they've lived their lives Yeah Shelly Winters and the guy that's playing her husband are in their 50s and 60s Grandpa Joe
0: it's Grandpa Joe, Hannah, from Charlie and the Chocolate Punch
2: Ernest Borgnine, who's portrayed as the kind of, with a young wife, is 55, so he's actually older than Shelly Winters when she made this and yet, her death is just like, yeah, well, she's she's had her life, haven't she? She had a good innings. He looks quite old, yeah. to be fair. I have to say, I absolutely fucking love Shelley Winters in this. I think she's really great. I think, you know when we watch The Swarm? Oh yeah, And it's, it's completely stupid, but Slim Pickings is really, really good in it. Mm-hmm. Shelley Winters is really good in this. Like, really great. She's the only
0: woman, I suppose, Linda, Ernest Bordnang's wife, is also someone with a bit of agency but Shelley Winters, Mrs Rosen, is the only one with a bit of agency and she actually gets to do something quite heroic. Yeah she does. Well she's a uh, former <laughs>
2: you know semi-professional swimmer. I just wish she'd mentioned it Jen, I just wish she'd mentioned it. <laughs> I mean to be honest I've had worse new years than this. <laughs> the few... People that are left at the end get to the thinnest part of the ship and eventually somebody somebody blowtorches a little hole and it's the rescue people and they say, is there anybody else alive? And they go, nah. And then they go, okay, just fly off. And nobody seems to check whether they, you know, should we just check? <laughs> nah, they're all dead. Honestly, they're all dead. I mean, they probably were, but there you have it. Just six plucky young adventurers have made it. But nonetheless, I still really... Liked it, but that a lot of that comes with Sunday afternoon nostalgia is a lot of what that is. Jen, who has never seen it before, tell me what you thought.
1: Didn't really hold my attention, if I'm honest. <laughs> it wasn't as long as I feared it would be.
2: It wasn't as long as The Towering Inferno
1: by a good hour. There was too much death and it was all horrible death, like falling into burning oil and shit like that
0: there is a lot of death and they are kind of like (laughs) when gene just goes you're gonna see a lot of dead people (laughs) yeah very blunt it wasn't really for me
2: yeah i could see why if i watched it for the first time now i might go what uh but also uh it has um and it's borgnine in it who i just even if he is playing a character who seems to be a second away from show her the back of their relationship is very problematic yeah absolutely i mean like i say there's a point at which he was working out the statistics of someone else on the boat having slept with his wife and you know that's a bad holiday (laughs) before the wave (laughs) even hits i've done very badly i've got seven three
0: maybe three four a push
2: i've got seven i think
0: go on then mick nature you cruel mistress with your massive waves Damn bosses with oh, yes. not enough ballast, mid-disaster punch-up. I mean, there's loads, uh, but there's actually like a proper punch-up between um, Ernest and Jean. Bridge collapse, which is the name of the bit of the ship that goes down. Being a bit cheeky with that, yeah. One. Women and children first. They are first up the Christmas
2: tree. I did wonder the logic of sending that kid up, being the first one to go up the Christmas <laughs> right. tree. To be honest. <laughs>
0: yeah because if he was light and only he could make it then it's of no use to everyone else anyway
2: absolutely and then and i don't know what the moral thing of it is of of testing on children basically
0: (laughs) (laughs) captain willing to go down with ship slash plane slash building obviously leslie nielsen doesn't really have a choice in it but gene hatman at the end Make, very much makes a choice and there is no brilliant plan that can't be fucked up with the addition of people we've seen the Christmas tree work beautifully but then you just pile a load of people onto it <laughs> and it
2: crashes down around their ears I did wonder if, if it, that party had been actually Halloween whether they would have had to just pile up a load of pumpkins and just <laughs> travel up that. <there.
1: laughs> Jen tunnel only an idiot would try to go through it's not really a tunnel it's underwater but it is sort of an enclosed space no I think it classes I as a know. tunnel
2: It's like a corridor, isn't
1: it? Yeah. There's a piss poor English accent at the beginning. I think he's like, maybe works on the ship or something. I'm not sure. He's dead
2: now. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, they all are pretty much. Can you smell burning? Yes, I can. It's Gene
2: Hackman. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus didn't save him. Why is that? Open question. Okay. I've got old personal sacrifice. The lovely Shelley Winters. Thing you can't do, meaning you would definitely die in this film. Hold your breath for that long or hang from those tables. Again, how are you climbing stood.
0: christmas trees
2: well I, I reckon i've got really good teachers as in my cats are brilliant at yeah. it so I, I could watch something and learn if only we hadn't bought substandard kit cannot say this enough ballast um, <laughs> Shelley winter's hairdo goes bad in fact most hairdos go bad so linda's hair doesn't stand to scrutiny does
1: not it at really. the
0: end it's, yeah. that's quite refreshing actually they all look like they've been on an, and I'm going to use their words here an adventure uh, they look like they've really been through the ringer which sometimes you're like how is their eye makeup still perfect and it really is not
2: Cassandra ignored cannot say this enough ballast <laughs> it was all going so well until I sprayed my ankle slash fell into hot burning oil a dot brace position well there was lots of that and screaming cowardice, which is basically anyone who was trying to get up that Christmas tree, which leaves me with seven.
0: Wow! Wow! Well, it's a, it's another tie, but it is.
2: I I don't mind. Oh Well, I picked last time, technically, didn't I? Even though you said you picked, it was me.
0: <laughs> I just I just heard this voice in my in my ear. It came to me. Okay, I'm buoyed up by the joy of snakes on the plane last week, and I would like to suggest that we watch sharknado great i've By never great, seen I it mean... but... <laughs> <laughs> um i don't think there's an amazing speech about the indianapolis <laughs> uh-huh. Anna, but...
2: shame uh... um, <laughs> in fact when this came out and it was like whatever channel it was on the discovery channel or something in america and everyone went batshit over it there was like a, a celebrity i don't know who it was that died and the, the last thing he was tweeting about was Sharknado. I just remember thinking, oh, what a thing. I can't remember who it was <laughs> oh, now, but it I go. thought, what a thing to be your last words as such, you know, Sharknado. What if that was the last thing you ever saw was Sharknado? I don't think, that, I don't think that's the time for that joke now, is it, currently? <laughs> <laughs>
4: Standard issue
5: for
3: all
4: women.